take the red pill, you stay in Wonderland, and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. I'm very uh, pleased to be joined by my uh, my guest here. You may have saw a tweet um, that I posted on my Instagram here. I'm going to read it off before I bring him in. But the tweet, it says, and I see the different reception to the thoughts here when I talk about race directly versus talking about mental health. I'm black. I experience racism. The two cannot be separated. If you support one, you must support the other. When I talk about race, I'm talking about my mental health. That tweet, when I saw it, was so profound to me uh, as a mental health advocate um, that, you know, it was just a perfect opportunity to, to chat. So I'm, I'm pleased to be joined by uh, my friend Asante Houghton. Welcome, man. Thank you for joining me. I appreciate it. No problem, man. It's an honor. Thank you for having me on. Um, well, I'll start off, and I know it's a stupid question, but I was listening to a podcast the other day. Um, it was regards to hockey, but um, the guest asked the interviewee, how are you doing? And her response was, I don't know. How are you doing? I don't know. No, I'm just playing. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, uh, right now I'm doing pretty good. Um, you know, I kind of go through the motions. I've been cycling through the motions. Um, you know, obviously, I mean, I, I think, I think that with, you know, everything that's been going on, there's like arresting anger. Um, that's just always, you know, sometimes in the background, but oftentimes in the foreground. Um, but, you know, today I woke up feeling hopeful um, and, you know, about race relations. And I, I don't think in the entirety of my life, I've always like hoped race relations would improve. And I've always worked towards that in my own personal life. And now I guess a bit more in the public sphere. Um, but I've never, I've hoped, but I've never felt hopeful that things were moving in the right direction. And now I actually do feel that. And I'm afraid to feel that um, because this problem has existed for so long and there have been so many voices, so many black voices speaking up about it. Um, you know, if we're talking about anti-black racism, if we're talking about racism in general, there have been so many voices of other people of color talking about it um, that sometimes, you know, if the history has been so long of people not listening, that's what you come to expect and you know in the moments where people do listen you're kind of like yeah you know you're listening now but what's going to happen tomorrow next week next month is it still going to be on your radar is it still going to be um not just a value that you hold personally but something that you stand up for um and so but you know i'm in a place now where uh you know um i am hopeful <laughs> and in, in a very like precarious way with a lot of trepidation, but definitely hopeful um, that things are changing. Mm -hmm. And it does seem like there's an element of, you know, like a wind of change kind of sweeping. I'm seeing people who, who don't get vocal on anything, uh, you know, um, posting about this, making donations. And like you said, uh, there's an element that, you know, reminds me a little bit of Bell Let's Talk, where people will come out for that one day uh, and, and talk about mental health and be like, oh, I support you. And then for the, the rest of time, like you never, you never hear from them again. And, and in their actions, they don't, they don't keep that momentum going. And, and 
I was watching a documentary uh, series on the 60s and I, I was kind of going through it and there was, you know, the, the, an episode on the civil rights movement. There was an episode on, you know, women's rights movement. I'm like, man, it, it's the exact same thing is happening that was going on in the 60s. Like there were so many parallels to the movements that were happening there 50, 60 years later now. And that, that, that is really worrying. Uh, uh, it is worrying uh, and I, I think that I think change happens fast but it happens slowly um, and, and what, what I mean by that is you know if if we were to look at the entirety of human history a lot of change has happened in the last 100 years 200 years in so many different ways uh, but then when you look at you know the average lifespan of a human being um, you know we're, we're doing 65 to 85 years for most people. Um, and, you know, within that time frame, you may not see that much change in your own life. Um, but when you zoom out a bit, uh, I, I think a lot of change, you know, has happened and is happening. And, uh, you know, even when I think back to, you know, civil rights era and, you know, women's suffrage movement, the things you just brought up, um, yeah, you know, it's like I could understand why folks would be worried that we're not actually making that much progress. Um, at the same time, I also feel like what was going down in the civil rights era? And, you know, that was, you know, segregation was still like in law back then, you know, and now, I mean, it's it's not that way. And some, many times people self-segregate on their own, um, but that there have been you know, so for me, there has been some movement. And so I like to think about change outside the vacuum of our lifespans. And I like to think about it in, in, from the standpoint of something at least has happened thus far, even if we haven't gone that far yet. You know, for me, it's a marathon. It may not, you know, the world I'm looking for may not happen in my lifespan or it may happen at the end of my lifespan, or if I am a part of a seed that is planted that manifests in a better world um, 100 years from now, 200 years from now, um, then I think I did my part, you know? And, and I think, you know, it's easy to get frustrated and say, man, none of this is gonna change, like, this is what it is. Um, very easy to, to get frustrated and to feel like that. And I won't ever fault anybody for feeling like that because, for a lot of people, that that's you know their experience of it. Um, but for me, I, I really just try to focus on on the, the little things, the little changes that we can measure, and the evidence that we have, and the things that have happened, and to say, hey, if that little bit of change can happen, um, maybe more change can happen, and maybe you know it'll be exponential. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've had that conversation with a, a few of my. Uh friends on the podcast when it when it comes to this conversation and you think about human psychology in any form and how hard it is to get us to accept any form of change uh, to our normal structure whether that's like your normal everyday routine you know and then we magnify it to now and it's always unfor unfortunate like I, I get what you're saying and keeping positive and, and exploring the you know, that the, those seeds of, of change that you said, but like, 
like you also said, to live your life knowing that you may never see the change that you want. You know, like I'm not, I'm not trying to share my, my, my guilt or, or emotions with you, but that it, that it's just, it's really sad to hear. And a little bit of masochism in, in yeah. that, you know, it's like, you know, you're going to suffer through this shit, yeah. but at the same time, you kind of choose that life because I don't know, there's, there's something inside of you that tells you that's the right thing. Mm. You, you're a two-time TEDx presenter. You were uh, the Canadian Association of Mental Health 150 Difference Maker. So you've been, I mean, you're part of the change. You've, you've been making waves and giving speeches and, and changing people's lives. Where, when did that start for you? Was there kind of like a moment where something clicked and you just were like, I'm going to do what I can to make change or was it kind of like a slower progression that something you just fell into? I would say uh, a slower progression mm. and something I fell into. So let me tell you the story. Mm. Not a lot of people ask me this question. So it's always really interesting. You know, for me, um, uh, you know, one thing that I find interesting is that a lot of folks who have mental health challenges um, and battle them, um, I'm not sure if they would know this or even admit it to themselves, but I'm admitting it right here is, you know, you walk around with self stigma and, and I did that for, you know, quite some time, uh, not just throughout the most impactful parts of my mental health, you know, illness, I'll, I'll say not journey, but the illness aspect where I was like really bad. Um, well, you know, the illness is still there, but in, in that, you know, from age 14 ish, to age 22, 23 ish, where things were really bad, um, kind of turned a corner uh, at age 23, 24. Um, started to get myself together a bit. Um, a lot of things changed very rapidly in my life about myself. Um, you know, the relationships I was engaging in went from not constructive to constructive. Um, then I started volunteering at an organization in Ontario. Um, I'm not sure if I, am I allowed to, you know, say names and stuff like that on this podcast? As long, anyway, as, it's posi- as, long as it's positive. Yeah, yeah, it's a positive thing. Um, <laughs> the, the Mood Disorders Association, the Mood Disorders Association of Ontario. Mm. So I started volunteering with them. Um, just essentially kind of being a bit of a secretary and, you know, once in a while having a, a mental health chat with the callers. Um, doing that once a week and I don't know how it came out or came about, but uh, I, I guess the understanding is there is that everyone who works there has lived experience and everyone who volunteered there has lived experience. And um, most of the folks who worked there were at that point, you know, age 30 and above. And they were starting a new initiative, uh, partnering with um, a school board in Toronto to do mental health talks where young people talk to young people. And essentially there was me and two other young people volunteering in the office. Um, one of them declined. Me and uh, another young woman uh, said, okay, we'll try this. And um, I was super scared uh, because once I sort of got myself together in terms of my own mental health, I I was kind of like, I wanted to erase that part of my life and never Mm -hmm. think about it again and never go back to it. Um, So I wasn't even trying to do anything in mental health, really. Um, uh, 
you know, or at, at the very least, I mean, my ambitions were about helping others with their mental health, but never talking about my own. Um, uh, anyway, uh, I kind of got voluntold into uh, doing this speaking thing. And now, like, what's really interesting about me at that time, I was 25 years old. Me at that time was I had no confidence in myself as a speaker or a communicator, someone who could socialize with others, get along with people, hold a conversation, you know, all the stuff that I do now. Essentially, I had zero confidence I could pull it off back then. And I didn't really have a lot of confidence that the average human being would like me after talking to me. So, um, but, you know, it was kind of like, I mean, I, you know, in saying what I just said, too, that was to such the extent that as fearful as I was of doing what I eventually did, was, which was speaking, after being bald and told, I was afraid to say no. And that was kind of how I ended up on that stage, um, you know, because the person supervising the program, she had a very strong personality. And I was just like, okay, you know, let me do it <laughs> uh, kind of thing. Um, so I was asked in like the spring of that year and, you know, over a few months, you know, developed my story uh, into a 30 minute version of it. And by the fall of that year, uh, I got up in front of a crowd of a couple hundred young people, high school students and um, other folks in the industry from different social service agencies, uh, teachers, et cetera, et cetera. And I told my story for the first time and I was so nervous that, you know, as I was holding the paper, like reading off of it, like I was shaking and like, I, the sweat was like dripping <laughs> onto the paper and making it unreadable. <laughs> but, <laughs> um, and then, and what, what's interesting is that if you watch, you know, my, my talk now, you know, because it's, you know, still to some extent similar. What, what I did in the, the first TED Talk is still ex to some extent similar to what I did when I was 25 years, years old, the first time I got on stage. And um, if, if you watch that TED Talk, you'll see that there's like a lot of humor in, interspersed in it. And all of those jokes that are in that TED Talk did not originate as jokes. It was literally just me telling my story. So when I was talking about Dr. Phil, that wasn't a joke. It was just like, this was what I did to try to, you know, get healthy. I was watching Dr. Phil. Or when I talked about, you know, the, the, this um, girlfriend I was trying to get in high school, um, you know, that wasn't a funny story the first time I was telling it. I didn't perceive it to be funny to others or that it would be funny to others. But anyways, as I was going through my story the first time, telling those stories and, you know, a couple others now that aren't really included in my talk, um, people just started laughing and not like laughing at me, but in a good way. And I was like, whoa, that, that like really took me aback because again, I never expected to really have a positive reception of it. Um, you know, I was 25, so not too far removed from high school. And you know, in high school, it's like a battleground. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, so I was like wondering if these kids were going to like come at me, heckle me or ridicule me or something like that. Um, uh, so I was very surprised to have a positive reception that when I was done, just the eruption of applause uh, that came and, uh, you know, afterward, people were lining up to talk to me and folks were like, how long have you been doing this? And I'm like, this is literally my very first time 
Um, I had people from, you know, Public Health Toronto wanting me to come speak, you know, to their workers. I had, you know, a whole bunch of other schools wanting me to come speak to their to their kids. And um, so that was kind of my very first experience. And, and, you know, from there, I just kept doing it because people keep asking. I've never, ever actually promoted myself, ever. Um, I'm bad at self-promotion. Uh, <laughs> um, but, you know, if people ask me and I have the time, I, I always say yes. I hear a lot of parallels uh, in that story because it, it was exactly the same way for me when I first did a public speech on, on my story. <laughs> the, the shaking of the hand, I can't read the paper, um, people kind of laughing along with me. I remember I, I tell the story of after a, a breakup when I was a, a teenager, oh. I pretty much locked myself in my room, like figuratively, but kind of literally for an entire summer playing World of Warcraft, listening to like dark metal music <laughs> and people kind of get a kick out of that. But like, I was like, didn't really understand what was going on, but that was my, that was like kind of like a soothing therapeutic summer for me where I was like just staying away from people in person and, 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 and sticking to myself. Um, I know you said it's boiled down to a 30 minute talk, but what were some of the things going on as a, as a teenager from that time period that you said 14 to 23 that were really significant for you with your mental illness and, and your mental health story? Uh, you know, what's interesting is some of the stuff that I include in my talk um, were obviously the significant things and there are a lot of things I don't talk about um, because I just didn't feel like, I don't know, I, I, it, it wasn't even from a position of me not wanting to talk about these things. It was from a position of me, you know, not sure that people would understand how those pieces connect to my mental health. Uh, and, you know, now is a time where I could talk about those things. So that's why I tweeted that tweet that uh, you read at the very beginning of this podcast, because um, a lot of it for me was around race and identity and mm. finding my place in the world and not necessarily feeling um, home anywhere in this country. Um, you know, I was born in Jamaica, but I, I came to Toronto when I was two years old. So you know, there's the disconnection from my homeland. Um, you know, obviously I still carry some of the culture, uh, but not to the extent of someone who might have, you know, grown up there until they were a teenager and, or, and beyond. Um, so, and I don't have a lot of family in Canada either. Um, and, you know, most of the family I, that I did, do have in Canada is on my father's side. Um, on my mom's side, it's literally just the immediate family. Um, so then when you know, the split between my mom and my father and, you know, and when I say split, not just divorce, but like complete disconnection from my father's side of the family when I was 13. Not that I saw them very often or anything before that, you know, there's a lot of disconnection from my own culture. Um, you know, we didn't live in a part of the city where there was a tremendous amount of Jamaican people. Um, so there was that piece of disconnection, but also being a black person and a black male, and, you know, growing up in the 90s in Toronto was very predominantly white, um, much more so than it is now, uh, where it's a lot more diverse. <clears throat> so there was always like this, you know, not necessarily 
being able to find a, you know, a home base in my own city. And that was a big part for me. And a lot of that had to do with my racial identity. Um, and a lot of, you know, the challenges I was experiencing in, as a teenager had to do with trying to navigate that. Um, you know, how do I be black but still fit in in white society? <clears throat> that kind of thing. Um, because, you know, in, in white society, it felt like the only way for me to exist was to erase my blackness, right? You know, and then if you do that, then you go back into black society and they're like, yo, what happened to your blackness? So um, there was always that kind of battle in my head of, you know, what direction should I go and what's, what side do I choose? And, uh, it, you know, how to explain that to a therapist who probably doesn't understand anything about racism and race relations. Um, so that was, you know, a, a big thing for me and a big reason why I didn't seek out help earlier uh, when I was a teenager and waited until I was in my early 20s to do it. Um, so, uh, you know, conversations that we're having right now are very important to me, um, not just about police brutality and law enforcement as law enforcement engages with black people and black bodies, um, but in terms of how other systems operate and can serve black people um, more efficiently, uh, not just efficiently, but effectively, um, right? So, you know, a lot of the things I've been posting on Twitter ha has been not actually about police brutality. It's about, you know, recognizing blackness and recognizing the black experience and recognizing the black voice because it's those things that are really going to drive change. We could all say, you know, let's be nice to black people. And there are a lot of people who are nice to black people, but are you doing anything for black people outside of just being nice to us, right? So if the more that you experience, you know, our culture, the more that you listen to us and the more that um, you, you try not to say, you know, we're all the same because I mean, on some levels, humans, we are all the same, but you know, culture is about difference. And that's not a bad thing. You know, it's, it's just saying that, you know, I eat this food, I talk this way, I dance this way, I listen to this music. And, you know, what I always grew up with and what I started noticing as, you know, hipsterdom became a thing in Toronto and hipsters kind of took over. It was, it was a thing where everything became exotic except except things that were that were aligned with blackness so it was you know uh you know the asian food became the thing or or you know the the european style of doing this became the thing or the latin american you know dance and culture became the thing but no one was ever embracing anything that had to do with africa right um so in a way there was still this erasure of blackness um outside of you know folks who like basketball and you know hip-hop music and you know r&b and soul music and jazz and stuff like that um and so it, it really felt like even in diversifying toronto that black people were still not a part of that diversification you know so the conversations like these now are very important to me because for me like, like i said in that tweet it's not just about you know, race, race and mental health go together because 
and I, I work almost primarily with young black people nowadays. Um, or, and if they're not black, they're certainly uh, another um, quote unquote minority group. I don't really like that term. Um, and, and it's challenging for me because it's, it, it becomes challenging to refer them to a, a therapeutic service that may not be able to serve them because they don't see them, if that makes sense. Right. Yeah. Um, it, it's a, it's a great point. And there's been two kind of turning points for me in this conversation. Now, you know, even as far as a, a year and a half ago, I was that type of person who didn't really understand colorblindness, you know, kind of was making that, that argument and that, you know, you hear it a lot. Uh, it's like, we should unite, not divide and stuff. And I didn't really understand that conversation until about a year ago. Now, the first instance of that, that conversation was at, um, it was at a, a workplace a mental health conference I was involved in. And, you know, we were talking about mental health in the, in the workplace. And I take the mental health work I do very, very seriously. One of um, there was a black woman who stood up and said, what are your companies doing to ensure that, you know, black people and, and, and people of color are having their unique experiences heard when it comes to mental health? And when she asked that question, I was like, you know, something kind of clicked where I was like, I never understood based on, you know, my experience and my naivety of growing up in a small white town that, How'd you grow up in? I'm curious. What? Oh, so I'm from a town. It's called Carlton Place. Um, okay. Where's that? So it is about 20 minutes west of Ottawa. It's about four hours from Toronto. Um, okay. So it's, it's very close to Ottawa, but it's still very small town. And especially when I was growing up, it, there was like 5,000 people. Okay. When I was growing up, there was one black family mm-hmm. that we knew and went to school with. Um, you know, so th- those conversations were were never had a- at all about race or or differences. And you know, now when I look back, I'm like, how s- much of a struggle must it have been for him and and the family to grow up in this white town and have to, you know, d- we're full of people with pickup trucks and hunters. And not that there's anything wrong with it, but you just it's very conservative. You know, we always joke that they could, you know run a, a friggin house plant and it would still win in, a, in an election right like that's just the way it is so again like these conversations were totally outside of my my scope but uh, you know even till like i was referencing uh, um last year and just we'll, we'll get back to the point in a second is you always took racism as overt racism um and that's the way i always viewed it that it's like well you know i'm nice to the i'm nice to people of color, I would never do anything to harm them without understanding those extra layers. So to this point, and to your point of this, this racial mental health um, kind of symbiotic relationship, you know, it wasn't until that question where I was like, wow, like, you're right. Like, you can't just go to someone who's never experienced it and be like, this is what I'm feeling and, and them kind of relate to you if they, they never know. Like, that was such an important point. Um, that opened my eyes. Yeah, and and you know, I'm I'm glad that happened for you, man. Um, you know, 
because who knows, maybe we wouldn't even be having this conversation if it did it. Um, and, you know, uh, I think this is an important conversation. You know, and for me, I try not to. Uh, I think I've been saying this a lot in my recent media tour, is uh, I, I try not to label people um, because I think we were all in, you know, we're all on a journey here, you know what I'm saying? Um, so, I mean, I think sometimes we want to label people because we're angry or we're hurt or we distrust. Um, and again, I, I can see and understand why folks do that. Just me, my own personal perspective is I don't like to label people. Um, and and it's because of, you know, stories like yours, you know what I mean? And, you know, you're still on a journey. And here's the thing is that I'm still on a journey too, right? And, um, you know, I know we're talking about race right now, but I'm still on a journey with other things in my life, you know, um, whether it's uh, understanding more about the queer community, which, you know, there, I didn't really grow up with uh, a lot of folks who I was friends with from the queer community. And now I do have friends in the queer community and I've had to learn and unlearn a whole bunch of shit. Um, and, and I should be doing that. And I embrace doing that. Excuse me, I'm not resistant to that, you know what I mean? And maybe at some point I was resistant to it or I didn't understand. But where I'm at now is, you know, let me lean into this. And if I'm uncomfortable, if I feel guilty about something I, I said before, like, for, you know, you know me, I'm a writer. I write a lot of things, poems. I write rap music. I write stories. I write anything you could possibly write. Um, and, you know, I look back to some of the things that I wrote in high school and in high school, I would have branded myself as someone who was not homophobic. Uh, but some of the things that I wrote, if I will, you know, if you were to read them now, you'd be like, maybe it's not calling anybody a name or using a slur. But I was certainly juxtaposing uh, queerness against heterosexuality in ways that were problematic, right? Um, so. You know, for me, it's not about labeling people. It's about, you know, saying that we're all on, on a journey. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. um, and with that, I mean, I know we're, we're, we're talking about the race and mental health thing right now. And it's, or, yeah, we're, we're talking about that right now. And it's, it's, for me, it's not about, I don't expect anybody else to have my exact same experience. Obviously, another black person is probably going to have a closer estimation to what, my experience may be like there's probably a lot of shared experience there but for me what's important is someone else trying to understand how I might have experienced something so to you know take a step back and to be able to imagine what it might be like walking through the world in someone else's shoes and someone else's experience mm -hmm. think, you know if I was a woman um, you know I'm a six foot four guy so when I get on the public transportation, most people are moving out of my way. Now, if I was a five foot five woman and, you know, regardless of whether I was conventionally attractive or not, the, every time I get on a crowded subway, there's, you know, a potential for danger for me. Right. So, you know, I, I think what I am endeavoring for is for all of us to start thinking more about how others who are different from us experience the world. Absolutely. It, it's, and 
I'm so thankful, you know, not to, to toot the horn of the podcast, but that just people have been able to come on to this podcast and just share a conversation with me. Um, sort of judgment free, but also very, you know, stern and educational. The second point of this, this transformation for me, because again, um, I always attributed things to overt racism versus that, that covert underlining thing. Um, you know, there was this idea that I had, it's like, and you hear it a lot too. It's like, well, you know, yelling and violence and, you know, all these kind of, um, magnifications of people trying to have their voice heard aren't going to work you need to debate ideas and let the best you know debate win it was a conversation i had previous with um her name's carrington christmas and i was literally able to have this face-to-face conversation on the podcast where i was like okay so why is color blindness bad why or why do you like it's why is it wrong why is the view you're sharing um you know, different. Explain to me, you know, I was able to go through all this, this whole conversation and, and have it answered to me so I could have time to reflect and think about it. Because, and when you start to hear these perspectives and these, these stories that I've never heard before or really understood outside of social media or movies, pop culture, you know, it, it just it goes to, you see it right now. The, the ideas aren't being listened to. They haven't been listened to. So if I want to believe in freedom of opportunity or, you know, uh, freedom of expression and, and speech, that we, we haven't been affording the same freedoms to, to you know, black people and, and, and uh, people of color and the LGBTQ community, We've been denying those voices. So how can we sit there and say that we want a debate of ideas when we won't even listen to the ideas for the, this debate? I use air quotes there. But, you know, it just that, that conversation was the second point where I was like, whoa, we're, we're not listening. And that's, that's a huge problem. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm glad that, again, you were able to have that, able to have that conversation because, um, that's why, you know, a thing that I tweeted recently is that I've always felt these things and I've been thinking these things since I was 15 years old, or at least developing my thinking about race and society since I was 15 years old. And it's only now that I'm saying them out loud because it feels like it's only now where people, white people, um, who are the majority in our country uh, are attuned to listening, right? So before, these were things that I would say to my friends, my family, and we we all kind of, we, we, we know what it is. We know what's up, you know what I mean? And, but now it's, it's, it's a time where I'm able to say this to the majority of white people, I, I can't say I never said this to a white person before, but usually, you know, and this might be true for a lot of black people or a lot of people of color, maybe queer people. It's like when, when you meet someone who has or who belongs to a group that has been oppressive to people who look like you or people who live like you or people who are you or share the same identity as you, um, you, you kind of go through a vetting process of like, 
how how deep can I go in terms of revealing my identity and experience to this mm-hmm. person? And the what you determine from that process kind of determines the amount of emotional intimacy that you will have with that person and the amount of things that you will say with honesty and, and the way that you will be with honesty around them. And, you know, for a very long time, it, it just didn't feel like I was able to reach that level with, unfortunately, the majority of white people I met in my life. And again, you know, I'm not condemning white people or, you know, I'm not like all white people are racist. Like that's, that's not my viewpoint. My thing is that like up until now, there was not a collective agreement amongst white people that black lives and blackness had value. And that was shown through uh, mostly in Canada through the lack of interest in black people and anything that we did or how we lived. Um, And when I say black people, I don't just mean like Afro-Canadians. I mean, you know, black people from the Caribbean, black people from the Latin community, black people from, you know, all of the countries in Africa. Africa is a super diverse place. People say Africa like it's a country, but it's like a huge continent with everything represented there. You know, we got black people who, who live in the South Pacific. We got black people in Europe and, you know, we're all experiencing things in different ways and have different cultures. And, you know, it seems like none of it was really ever paid attention to or represented. Um, and, you know, maybe black Americans got a little bit of that um, just, you know, through pop culture and media and sports and entertainment. Um, but the, the, the stories, the, the full stories of black people did not seem to have any interest for the large majority of white Canadians. And because of that, it's like, why, why speak up to someone who's not ready to hear you? And even, and, and, you know, and it's not to say that we haven't even tried to speak up before we have. It's like, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, why are the protesters doing this? Or why are the protesters doing that? It's like, dude, let's pay attention. Uh, people have tried to vote for the right people. I know they're like, ah, oh, use your vote. People have tried that. They've tried to vote for the right people. They've tried to talk to the politicians. They've marched through the streets, um, you know, for generations uh, peacefully. Um, they've protested peacefully. Uh, you know, people have done quite pretty much everything that they've been asked to do in terms of, you know, demonstrate peacefully or ask peacefully or speak peacefully or have the discussion or like people have done that and then they've seen that that has not been working and you know when you you know I don't know if I want to use this example but I think I'm going to use this example is if you try to domesticate an animal and you beat the animal it's scared of you for a long time. And then when it realizes that fear is not working or whatever response it's doing is not erasing the, you know, the abuse that it's receiving, it strikes back. You know, that becomes a last resort, right? And by the way, in saying that I'm not at all comparing black people to animals, I just want to put that across clearly. Um, but I just couldn't think of a better 
example. Um, sure you're going with it for sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, but anyway, well, what I'm saying is that people are kind of just fed up with action not being taken. And, you know, as we talk about, you know, one thing that I've been seeing a lot of is, is Martin Luther King quotes. And, and you know, which, white people love that. Right? White people love Martin Luther King, man. Yeah. I, I've yet to see a Malcolm X quote. And Malcolm X has a lot of quotes where he specifically says that I do not hate white people. I do not like the way white people treat black people. I do not endorse violence. However, if you are going to be violent towards me, what do you expect in return? Right? So, and, it, and it's not from a place of, oh, let's kill all the white people. It's more of a place of like, stop being violent toward me. Right? Mm-hmm. Anyway, you know, narratives get twisted. But anyway, going back to Martin Luther King, um, I, in, in saying that too, I, I urge everyone who, who's listening to this to go watch the movie Malcolm X uh, by Sp- Spike Lee starring Denzel Washington, one of my top favorite movies. And also go read the autobiography of Ma- Malcolm X, um, uh, which, you know, um, I don't know if it's co-written, but Alex Haley is the, is the person who kind of finished it after Malcolm X was assassinated. Um, and you'll, you'll be able to see Malcolm X's journey more clearly. Anyway, Martin Luther King, after he was assassinated for, you know, protesting peacefully for a very long time, um, <laughs> uh, there were riots in the United States for about a week, and then the Civil Rights Act was passed. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if I need to say anything else about yeah. that. Um, even in our lifetime, uh, you think about uh, 1992, uh, uh, the LA riots after Rodney King. Um, some great documentaries on Netflix. Uh, Let It Fall is one of my is one of my favorite documentaries about that, and, and you know the implications of of the riot. Um, even more recently, uh, I've I forget the name of the the place in Missouri that protested in i think it was 2016 or 2017 um you know there's protest what's that sorry we're talking about ferguson ferguson thank you yeah you know uh protest after uh zimmerman um was acquitted you know the and then you go right into i mean everyone's using the example of kaepernick right now yeah there's been tons of examples of people trying to get his job yeah his career for kneeling down. So like, if we just look in these exam- I mean, Ferguson was all kind of a lot like what's happening right now, but these, those, just those few examples, not to mention all the things that don't get the coverage of just of our lifetime of, and nothing's happened from them, unfortunately. Like, you know, it's just been, it's happened through the news cycle and then everyone kind of moves on with their lives. Mm-hmm. So we, we still have to live with that. Yeah. You know what I mean? So it's like, while everyone else is moving on with their lives, we still got to live with it, right? Which is, you know, it makes people angry, right? It's like, there's one thing to not care. It's another thing to pretend to care and then not care. Mm. You know, it's like, you ever been in that relationship with that person who said they love you and they'll do the world for you and then, you know, when you need them, they don't show up? Yeah. You're like, damn, where are you? You're saying all this stuff. You're doing all this stuff. And, you know, you might show up every once in a while. Right. And 
you know, that every once in a while is like, okay, maybe they're changing. But then you're gone again. Mm -hmm. Like, damn. But because you show up every once in a while, there's a part of you that sticks around for the bullshit. Right? Yeah, it, uh, it's so many people, you get those, um, you know, positive vibes only, uh, you know, positivity, all, all these people. And, and to a certain respect, I, 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 I get that, right? The world is a, a tough place and you want to, you want to forget or you want to focus on, on the good things. And I can understand that, but you know, black people and, and all these people who are oppressed don't get that luxury to just focus on the positive things all the time. And I think it's a disservice to ignore all those things that being that are unsaid because you view them as oh, negative or they make you uncomfortable. You know, I've always tried to tell myself, it's like, you know, if there's a shooting, uh, like read all the names of the, the people, um, of the victims, you know, it's like you have to put yourself in these uncomfortable spots to try to understand and, and empathize with them and not brush over them with, Oh, it's a sunny day and I'm enjoying my margarita in the pool. Like it's <laughs> right. Like people aren't getting that opportunity. And when, when, when Ellen DeGeneres said that quarantine was like prison. Yeah. And, <laughs> and an element I understand, right? Like as a mental health advocate, I understand like you're trapped in your house. You can feel that negativity, but you have to be sensitive. Like people don't have homes. People are being kicked out of their homes. Uh, people are, you know, like, have like there's that one side and then there's the reality side that you have to understand and empathize we have to fix that to really have that enjoyment of all the positive things in our life because so many people don't get to enjoy them yeah you know and i, I think there's a lot of privilege in saying you know think positively or be positive or have positive mm -hmm. vibes all the time and i say that as someone who is now like very firmly entrenched in middle class life and a middle-class lifestyle and excuse me let me tell you that like my honest experience of life was my mental health improved dramatically once I got my first job out of university and it wasn't like a super high paying job but it was a job where I could afford to pay rent put food on my table and to go out with my friends a few times a month and immediately my mental health skyrocketed because I was no longer worried about poverty every single day. I was no longer looking in my cupboard in my fridge and thinking, how can I take these basic elements of food items to come up with a meal that one will hold me down for a few hours and two, I can enjoy the taste of it when I put it in my mouth. Sometimes I don't even enjoy the taste of it. It's just, it's not disgusting. You know what I mean? <laughs> so, um, uh, and it's like, there's a lot of privilege in, you know, the, the positive vibes and stuff works. I mean, I'm not saying that it never works, but I'm saying it's easier to get there when you are in a position of comfort. And as far as, you know, comfort goes, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm very big on, learning to be uncomfortable 
because I think, I don't know, uh, did you play sports growing up? I did, yeah. What, what sports did you play? I mean, mainly hockey, but I kind of, okay. like I played football, basketball, volleyball, uh, that type of stuff. I played um, baseball and, and soccer and basketball. Um, so anyway, as an athlete, when you train, it's drilled into you that the only way you're going to get better is when you go past comfort and you go into discomfort. When, you know, uh, you're working on, on, on your wrist shot and it, or your slap shot and, you, and you, you know, you just, you can't, you know, you can't get the puck up off the ice. Like, that's so hard for kids. I've seen so many kids struggle, you know, working on their slap shot because they just, you know, couldn't get it up off the ice. Or once they do, the puck is flying all over the place. Like, they they, they can't get it on net, right? Um, you know, you're working on, you know, your jump shot in basketball. You're missing, you know, 80% of the time until you start to get it. And then you're, you're, you're making 80% of them, right? So it's like... You, you have to go, you're hitting a baseball is like, I mean, if you hit 300, you're doing really well in yeah. baseball, right? So if you hit a baseball one third of the time that it comes across the plate to you, you're doing really well. So when you play sports, you kind of get it built into you that discomfort is not necessarily a bad thing. It's a part of the process. Um, and I think that's something that we shield people from in our society. Um, as our society, you know, becomes more economically thriving, and, and we are. And I know that, you know, we, we say we're struggling, and, you know, a lot of people are struggling. I'm not going to take that away from them. Um, but um, I also think that we, we have a tremendous amount of resources and social safety nets here in Canada. And, um, and in saying that, to kind of try to put things in perspective, that while it might be uncomfortable, many times and it might be really uncomfortable many times um you know whether it's you know in our living situation or or whatever it may be i think i'm talking in circles now but <laughs> what i'm trying to get back to is that uh growth oftentimes requires discomfort you know and so if we're having a uncomfortable conversation about something it's not because or let, let's not label that discomfort as a bad thing it's it's if we're being mindful it's it's a thing and we need to accept it and you know it's it's the other side of the same coin because you know when you flip that discomfort what you move toward is comfort because now we have an understanding right you know this this isn't the first instance unfortunately of you know a black man being killed by police and and it being shown on video you, you know you don't know him um you, you never met george floyd or um i i wish i, I should have had the name Ahmad aubrey uh was the a couple weeks ago i believe yeah. uh you know you see these on video and it's been going on for decades what is your reaction when you hear that news do you you know as a black man do you feel that personally does it, it does it feel like a maybe a friend or a brother or a sister or a parent has has you know been murdered um you know is there that relationship with it when you see you know that that act of violence yeah you know i, I think there is um you know i think most recently with the George Floyd video, that one, 
impacted me not just because of like the reason it impacted everybody, but I mean, <laughs> I looked at like George Floyd, and I'm not saying that he looked like a family member, but his demeanor in terms of like you know the picture that they show of him standing up and his head is kind of back like this, like that demeanor is very similar to you know someone in my family that's that's close to me, mm. and so. It's not to say that he looks alike or anything like that, but the energy that you get from that photo reminds me of the energy of, you know, a family member um, in my own family. And, and I think that's what made that one hit extra hard for me. I mean, on the flip side, if I'm being quite honest, a lot of these things at this point, when I hear about them um, up until now, because now people actually seem to give a shit, <laughs> um, a lot of these things, when I'd hear about them, I'd be like, shrug my shoulders. That's why I was another wondering. One, another one. Another one. And, and even as we're going through these protests, other black men have been killed. Um, and, you know, they're just not receiving the same media coverage because of what's going on. Right? So, um, you know, there's a guy in Louisville, Kentucky, who was killed by police. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, during a protest as police, you know, opened fire into a crowd. You know, this guy was uh, a community organizer and barbecued for the community uh, in the summertime, right? So, I mean... Breonna Taylor, I mean, that's when people yeah, are bringing up Breonna right Taylor, now. Where, I mean, Breonna Taylor, everyone's saying her name, but do people know the story? Breonna Taylor, um, uh, a bunch of officers broke into the home where she and her boyfriend were living. Um, uh, plainclothes officers did not announce themselves officers, so... Um, you know, there was some sort of, I don't know what happened inside the house. We'll probably never know what happened inside the house. And next thing you know, officers are just firing off shots and she gets hit, what I think was eight times. And, you know, she was sleeping and next thing you know, she's killed. What people are not necessarily publicizing about that story is that the person that the police said they were looking for, one, did not live in that residence and two, was already arrested earlier that day. So, um, I mean, they're right, <laughs> you know. So, yeah. um, and and this is why it's important to have. It's important to for me. I think of, about those officers, and I think if you. If you were to see all black people with the same level of humanity, and not necessarily those officers, the police department, whoever was involved in the investigation of that case, maybe the oversight that this individual who you are trying to apprehend was already apprehended, maybe that oversight doesn't happen if it was already within your natural way of being to value the lives of black people. Not to say that I, I I don't know the details of the individual who they apprehended, what they did, et cetera, et cetera, or how, I don't know anything about that. Um, so I can't make any judgments there. But what I'm saying is that, and I say this as someone who, who is a social service worker, is that oversights are generally made when not enough care is given to the person or the persons involved in whatever case, whether it's a legal case or welfare or whatever the case may be, right? 
So this is why I think it's important to talk about this issue in, in terms of the many layers of it, including mental health, which, you know, we're sort of talking about now. Um, but if I care about the entire story of another person, I may not criminalize them, right? Mm -hmm. But if I only see the part of the story, which maybe I've learned from media or family or et cetera, et cetera, and that's the only part of the story that I even care to consider. And when, you know, people who might be represented by that story tell me a different story and I don't listen, if I only consider the story that I've been told, then I'm not seeing that person as a whole person. I'm seeing them through the lens of my stereotypes and prejudice and bias that I've learned throughout my life. Right. And, and then this happened as a result of that. Yeah, and, and just to acknowledge, uh, as we record this, it's Friday, June 5th, which would have been uh, Brianna's 27th birthday. So I want to make sure I, I, I acknowledge that part. Um, that's where media and, and journalists, in a sense, get into a little bit of trouble because in our world of quick bites and uh, like, you know, that snap, snap, communication, media generations, no one's going to read a long story or watch a long video. You know, we... we we don't get a representation of the the full story of everything that's happening. We just get like the highlight reel. Uh, and, you know, that's why I, I we were talking off mic before, um, why I appreciate these, these podcasts, um, you know, and, and conversations that go a little bit longer form or go more in depth on a subject, because, you know, I don't know if I ever would have known that they already had the suspect caught or, or that like he never lived in that area. You know what I mean? Like, you don't get that information sometimes because you just get the, you know, someone was killed, but, but, and then, you know, the new cycle just keeps going because there's so much going on. And it's, it's, I think that's why, you know, media gets in trouble, especially in the States with, you know, fake news and, and that they're biased or, or whatever, um, because they, they don't often represent the full story. And like you were saying, those many layers of everything going on. Okay, I'm not going to uh, keep you too much longer, uh, but I do have two more two questions for you. Um, one is on the the recent movement of abolish uh, police. Um, that's that's trending on Twitter. Um, it's something when I immediately read it, I was against because of the word abolish until I read more on it, which many people don't do. I don't know if you have a a background or, or a sense of what that movement's about. But, you know, are you kind of for it right now, maybe against it? Um, you know, what are your thoughts on that whole movement? You know, what's interesting um, is, is that I have not been able to do enough research right. myself to, to really have uh, an informed opinion on it. You know, um, I, I think for me, as far as what I've read so far and what I understand, uh, you know, abolish policing or defund the police. It's really about um, taking money away from the reactive nature of how police operate and, and you know, putting that money into preventative measures um, so that, you know, maybe communities uh, which are affected by the, the sorts of challenges that impoverished communities are affected by 
um, don't experience the things that quote unquote require policing, even though I'm, you know, it's interesting. What one thing I've been saying to a lot of friends lately is that, you know, uh, you hear a lot of folks, uh, a lot of white folks who maybe just, I don't know, think about this stuff differently or quote unquote, don't get it yet or whatever the case is, um, who say things like, you know, the police are there to serve and protect. But when you're a black person, it feels like the police are there to surveil and enforce, you know? So, um, that, that's kind of how I've always ex like experienced police. Police make me more nervous than anything in the world. Um, when, when I'm around police officers, I am very nervous. Um, even now as I'm talking about it, I'm getting nervous. Uh, police cruisers rolling by. I'm always like, what are they doing? You know, I live in downtown Toronto, you know, so there's often a lot going on in downtown Toronto. I live right outside of a university, you know, the Eaton Center, Young and Dundas. It's all right there. It's the center of the city where everything happens, outdoor concerts, all of that. And, you know, there's always something going down. And, you know, just my past history. And, and here's the thing about police is that my anxiety around police is not built on the videos of George Floyd or other folks who have been brutalized by police. It's based on my own experience in my own life. And I think that's the part that a lot of Canadians don't get about black people being upset or feeling the way that we feel about police is that, you know, maybe we're not getting shot in super public ways, but I, I can, I do not know. In fact, in the entirety of my life, I think I am the only black male that I know who has not been unjustly manhandled by police. And that's not to say I have not been stopped or un, un, you know spoken to in ways that I shouldn't be spoken to or you know intimidated and things of that nature. It's just a police officer has never laid their hands on me. You know, but I've been called everything in the book dangerous, you know, I look like this and all of that and you know every other black male in my life that I know has had a negative physical altercation with police right. so yeah just processing it's you you know it but when you hear when you hear it like it's just yeah that's it's a lot and that's it's just tough um, and I can only imagine um, the last one for you, you know, it's a, it's a question I've kind of asked amongst my friend group is like, how does this current wave end? You know, we have the protests, they're going around the world. Um, we're in the middle of a pandemic, you know, it's a very complicated time. Like how everybody forgot about the coronavirus, right? Yeah. It's not only like we're in kind of two waves of these, these, movements and and now you know you're in this this danger of the pandemic spreading you know i know you don't have all the answers but is where do you see this 
ending like what do you hope i know probably what you hope for it's a stupid question but you know just share some of your thoughts on on where you see this current time going and 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 moving forward uh i have my aspirational thoughts and i also have the thoughts of the way i think it's gonna happen Uh, the way i think it's gonna happen is that the protests will die down probably in another, you know, one to three weeks. And then there will be probably some level of legislative change over the next several months to a couple of years. After that, um, who knows? Uh, what I hope will happen in the process is that we don't forget this moment in time and that this moment in time has made a large enough impact on the majority of us that we continue to learn. We continue to stay committed to it. You know, um, I, what I think people who are not black can do. I know we talk about white people a lot as well, but also wanting to acknowledge that, you know, there are people who are not black who also throw a significant amount of racism toward black people. Um, that's a whole different conversation for a different day, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I would like for all non-black people to do, and also for, you know, black people like Candace Owens, <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, are and you know to listen to black people and to believe black people you know because we've been talking about this kind of stuff for a very long time but now we got a 10 minute video of it and not like a 30 second police clip of the police are shooting and people make up a narrative in their head about why they might be shooting you know with George Floyd what we got was several different angles of the police officer, Derek Chauvin, kneeling on his neck and not responding to civilians who are telling him to, yo, get up. Don't you see he's not moving? Um, We also have the surveillance video of George Floyd being handcuffed. So we know that he was not resisting arrest. So it, you know, we have all of the irrefutable video evidence in front of us. And that's what it took for folks to believe black people. Right? Don't allow that to happen again. Just listen to us. Just believe us. Because what do we gain from lying? Like, where? what do we get out of that? Why would we do that? If we are acknowledging that we are in a, an oppressed position, in a position of oppression, would lying not only actually just make our lives worse? If we are found to be lying, why would we do that? It does not make logical sense. Yeah. Powerful words. Right? So just believe us. That's it. And to keep learning and to keep, you know, thinking, what is it? what might it be like to walk through the world in a black body where 
People assume that you're dangerous. People assume that you're an idiot. People assume that you're incapable. People assume that you're incompetent. People make all these negative assumptions about you the moment they see you. And then as a black person in the professional sphere or just in the world, you're working every day to make sure people don't make those assumptions about you because if they do, it can impact not only how well you do in terms of your economic circumstance, but also whether or not you get beat up, raped, killed that day. You know, I, I hear the hurt, I hear the passion in your voice, in your statement, and it, uh, it's truly powerful. And I want those words to resonate with, with everybody. Um, thank you. I know it, you've been asked a lot this past week to, to talk about this. Um, and the, the capacity and energy it's taking, you know, physically, mentally on you, uh, I, I can't begin to imagine, but I, I just... High blood pressure now, man. Did I say that? What's I that? Said that? Publicly, like, I haven't really tweeted about that, but I have high blood pressure now. That's oh, where man. I'm... <laughs> from, from a result of this? I mean, you know, between it's, the coronavirus and this. Right. <laughs> man, I really appreciate you giving me the time and having this conversation with me uh, a lot. Uh, thank you. And, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to stand on a high horse here or anything, but no, uh, I'm, I, I'm, it's, I'm late, but I'm doing everything that I can in my power to make sure voices are heard, uh, charities are highlighted, and we, we continue to move this, this forward in the right direction. Um, if people want to see you on Twitter, they want to find more information, they want to hear from you, where can they, where can they find you? Yeah, on Twitter, uh, my Twitter handle is um, A-S-A-N-T-E, capital V, um, Asante V. Um, you know, that's kind of where I'm doing most of the talking these days. Uh, you could Google me for short. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot about me and things I've said and done on Google. Um, I'm sure you'll put my full name yeah. into Twitter. Uh, I'm sure you'll give people an opportunity. Uh, please publish my full name, actually. I, I, you know, um, and... Uh, I guess beyond that, if if you make any like promotional clips out of this or anything, uh, that this last exchange that we had in the last five minutes, I think I would like for that to be the focus. Absolutely. For sure. Um, again, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Uh, I hope, I hope you keep well. I hope, you know, um, you're surrounded by loved ones right now and, and that uh, you're being taken care of and, and all that good stuff. I really appreciate, I really appreciate this. Thank you, man. I appreciate you having me on and for us being able to talk like this and be honest and open. That's, That's what it's about. Yeah, you know? it's really the only way we can move this forward and, and take action. That's what's up. It's all love. <laughs>